Welcome to Gov Actually, the podcast about how government works. How it actually works. I'm Dan Tangerlini, Chief Financial Officer of the Emerson Collective, and this is the FedScoop Radio Network. And I'm Danny Werfel from the Boston Consulting Group. We launched this pod to try to get beyond the personalities and the politics. Right. We want to talk about how things actually get done in the government, the people who do it, and the challenges they face. So let's talk. All right, Danny, we're back. It's the first episode of Gov Actually in 2021, and I really should say that I'm back. Um, I, uh, I, I thank you very much. And, and in case people were, were worried about my disappearance, uh, it's a very simple explanation. I was helping out with the Biden-Harris transition. Um, I can say that much. I can't say much more about what I was doing there. I, I do deeply appreciate that you and Nani kept the home fires burning. Uh, it's fun to hear you. I have, I have lots of beef about some of the comments you made, but we, we can deal with that offline. Well, I, I'm glad that you mentioned, I wasn't sure you were ever gonna be able to reveal that <laughs> you went in and helped with the Biden-Harris transition. And uh, it's a shame I can't interview about it, but okay. But I'm so glad glad you're back and, uh, and excited to really get into a rhythm with Gov actually. And so much has happened. Oh my. Um, uh, since we last, you and I last did a podcast and there's a lot to unpack. And, you know, we're going to try to, you know, we have some New Year's resolutions about the show, about the podcast. First of all, we are committed to a monthly episode, not, not, not to miss a month. And so that's a promise. Second, we're going to have more guests. Um, today's guest is, uh, is going to uh, be Ian Jeffries from the uh, American Association of Railroads AAR. Yeah. And they are the industry representative. They're kind of the they're the industry folks for the freight railroad industry, particularly what are called the class one freight railroads, the biggest freight railroads. Yeah. Um, and and that, yeah, go ahead. And I was just going to say that I, I think that, you know, I think that railroads and, and that whole industry is incredibly cool in and of itself but i but i actually think it's a great example of the kind of um structure that industry need to create in order to relate with uh their regulators in the federal government and so there's a there's a bigger inherent kind of gov actually story there of how is the you know how, what's the wiring diagram or the plumbing of of the regulatory state yeah, there's often kind of, I get the question a lot, having uh, lived in my government career through, through, through administrations of different parties, a Republican president, a Democratic president, and um, how much changes. And there are certain things that don't change that much at all, even as extreme as Obama to Trump to Biden. Um, there's just things under the hood of government that just roll along and don't have a lot of interplay with politics or political leadership. Um, and then there's stuff that changes fairly significantly. And one such area is the philosophy and culture around regulation. And, you know, there's, uh, there's a sense that, 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 that Democrats tend to leverage regulation uh, as, as, a, as a very important tool to, uh, to drive a, a policy agenda around different areas. 
And there's a sense in a culture that Republicans deregulate industries in order to drive a policy agenda. And I think some of that is exaggerated. Uh, some of it's very true, but I think what's really interesting about the rail industry is, is they've historically had a, a healthy uh, relationship and, and a positive set of, of regulations that have come out. There's an, a ton of controversy around them and there's some lessons to be learned there, I think. Yeah, and unless you're you know deep in the weeds of the industry. So I was the Federal Railroad Administration budget examiner and I can tell you it felt, you know, it felt very controversial and very hot and heavy um, when you're, you know, three feet away from it. You're right, at 30,000 feet or three miles, uh, whatever, it, it, it's not quite. Um, yeah, I, I feel like the bigger ones, just to kind of throw it out there, uh, we talked about regulation of, of guns, which is right. maybe the biggest, but there's also the regulation of the financial industry. Sure. I think about an entity like the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Yeah. Uh, and and how much how much controversy and how different it felt in a Democratic administration versus a Republican administration. Think about oil and gas. You know, the XL pipeline is now back. Boom, right? And yeah. you know, a, a, a canceling of what was called a presidential permit, which is the the permit that allows one to cross a border from the United States to, in this case, Canada. And that's issued at the presidential level. It's a it's a, in essence a diplomatic um, permission. And um, you know the the incoming Biden Harris administration canceled it, and so there is an example, a very stark example in the oil and gas regulatory uh, environment where it is very political. Although you'd probably say on on the day to day, you know, nine ninety percent of the regulatory work is actually somewhat apolitical. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I think is interesting. I, I is is what really does change administration to administration, and um, and and how much of it is more hype, and how much is it, is it real and perceived, and um, and I I don't I don't I think it's worth you know, and keeping with the theme of our podcast is really to peel back the onion layer in our shows and understand. You know, juxtapose what went on in the Trump era versus the Biden era going forward and really try to get into what's uh, what's a perceived difference versus what's a substantive difference. Like the slate of e executive orders that Biden has issued since taking office on January 20th, a couple of weeks ago, they feel very significant to me, both substantively and symbolically in terms of signaling a different policy direction on very big issues related to the pandemic and science, related to the um, to immigration, um, and related to climate, I, I, some of it you could say, well, executive orders are kind of a, a fairly benign tool versus, let's say, legislation or a treaty or something like that. But, but I don't know. I I look at those executive orders and they feel both substantive and symbolic. Well, and I, and I think that there is this interesting coming back to this idea around regulation, whether one party is for it and the other is against it. This idea of, of creating a, a, a distinct binary is actually in support of, you know, uh, this broader notion of politicizing almost everything, right? So yeah. um, uh, this idea that one party is for and the other is against is, is, a, is, is 
an oversimplification, but that's easier than for getting people to align themselves around one or the other. You know, I remember in the National Performance Review that um, then Vice President Gore led, one of the goals was a 10% reduction in all regulation. I remember when Cass Sunstein was running OIRA under the Obama administration, he had a goal to reduce burden hours and burden hours are the measured impact, you know, the amount of time that and energy people have to put into adhering regulation. He had a goal to reduce burden hours by I think also 10%. And so I think that there's, there's a much more subtle and I think it's a very robust area for, you know, further gov actually inspection to look into the questions of, you know, regulation pro or con, um, regulation um, as a uh, as a you know as a powerful directive tool or regulation as a supportive suggestive tool that's that's goal oriented rather than command and control. Super interesting uh, set of areas of discussion, and you know coming out of last year in our last you know uh, get together, my goodness we've had an election, we've had <laughs> we've had a um, ascertainment, we've had. Uh, a transition, an insurrection, we've had uh, an inauguration, and now we're having, um, uh, you know, the implementation of transition. There's so much uh, that we all, have to cover. All going on with the backdrop of a once in a century global pandemic. Yes. Really changed American life and global life in ways that I don't think anyone could have ever predicted. Um, and um, and so it's really hard to get get your mind around all of it, but I do think it. I would like to reflect a moment on on some some emotions and reflections from from January sixth. Um, and you know, I just want to share that I, you know, there's such a sense of despondency and sadness that I felt, you know, as I watched uh, the images. Um, you know, it's, it's a combination of surreal, like, I never thought I would see this. It's worrying about people and their, and their, and their safety in, in real time. Uh, but it's also kind of like a, how, how did we get here? And, um, and, um, and it's kind of a profound sense of, of, of sadness that, that it's come to this, that, it, that it's violent and that we're not having a peaceful transfer of power. And what does that mean? And then to go shoot forward to the inauguration and to see the Capitol in a very different light hmm. and a much more optimistic light. And it's hard to say that and people be like, well, that's very political, you know, because, but I don't feel it in a political way. I, I feel I, it more I, in an American way, but. I, I agree. I, I think that, um, you know, I think that this is, you know, this is always our struggle. How do we make sure that this conversation is safe space for people of any political persuasion to really learn about how government actually works is what we've said. But I do think that at, our, at the fundamental basis of our conversation is a deep patriotic appreciation for these institutions and the sacrifices people have made to build them and defend them. And so when you see a moment like January 6th, uh, sadly, I, I live on Capitol Hill, so I know how incredibly robustly militarized that area uh, was in which those important, um, you know, you know, those, those institutional celebrations took place. I was so relieved and pleased to see them go off 
as as seamlessly as they possibly could have in an age of of global pandemic and and internal threat. What I was sad to see was that it wasn't just the global pandemic that was making it, you know, different. Yeah. And and that to me is is the big struggle where to your point is we have to try to avoid politicizing everything so that we can have a place for debate and discussion. But at some point you can say without politics, some things are not supportive of our of our of our country's institutions and in making progress. Oh, absolutely. And I, I mean I, I know deep in my heart that that I view the 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 view of the capital as a non-political thing because since I was a little kid, right, depending on whatever president was president at the time, looking up at that Capitol dome has provided me the same sense of patriotism and excitement and a little bit of a flutter in my heart. It didn't matter whether it was Bush was president and Obama was president. It, there's something about, about that symbol and my, and my love of country that, that got me excited. And and that's what I that's why I'm proud of this show is that I think we try to go at it from a what is what is what do we need to do as a community of government employees and a, and government contractors and, and legislators to make this government work better for the American people and for the world. And um, and I don't care what political stripe you are if you're watching the events on January 6th, something there is fundamentally broken. And one of the big questions that I have, Dan, is typically when you have an immense failure, an inflection point of the enormity of a 9-11 um, or, uh, or the pandemic or that moment on January 6th, usually there's a massive reckoning and lesson learned and we say, this can't happen again. And therefore the laws change, the, the structure of government changes. I mean, think about everything that changed after 9-11 in terms of how we fly, we created a whole new department uh, within government. I mean, life was never the same. So a couple of questions for you. Is this a life is the never the same moment, January 6th? And, and or are our politics so broken that things probably won't change that much in terms of, 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 of analyzing the events that led to it and then figuring out how to prevent it from ever happening again? I, I want to react to the word broken um, with politics. I would almost argue that the politics are so incredibly honed and refined, you know, kind of almost the opposite of broken, that it would be very, very hard for, um, for uh, one party to say, you know what, that, that, that was too far. And you saw a moment when that was you know, it felt like it was in vogue, like, wow, that really was too far. And now you've seen a creeping back. Um, and I, I realize we're getting close to politics here. So I wanna be careful with that. But I would, I would almost argue what's, what's a bigger problem and why it's an interesting question to say, I don't think this will be the same life-changing moment that 9-11 was, right? Because the, the, the country could galvanize with a common sense of purpose. Now, there, you could, we could have a long conversation about mistakes we made and um, uh, you know, may have made uh, in response. But in this instance, I'm afraid this is a internal dispute, you know, and this is harder for us to galvanize around. Um, and so I think that that's the, 
that's the struggle right now, in part because our politics have become perhaps too well honed, um, too, too precise and too much about a, a binary. Yeah. And so that's, that's, where, that's where I get sad about it. Well, I've been thinking a lot. I'd like to break problems down into piece parts. And, and when I reflect on January 6th, it's so much to take in that I, my, my mind immediately says, can I start segmenting it into different causes and things we can solve for? And one of the issues that I you know, kind of have a growing obsession with is, is social media and is the, 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 the avenue and the channel, it can be for good and for bad, um, the spread of, of, of misinformation, um, should it be regulated? How do we handle it? There's this whole, uh, I think, uh, policy decision over what's called Section 230, which I think deals with this question of regulating the, the, the movement of information through channels, which is now how most uh, Americans and, and global citizens consume information. I think we should delve into that in a future episode and get an expert on and talk through, you know, the pros and cons of that from a free speech, from a safety. I mean, going back to the earlier part of the discussion on regulation, this seems to me to be one of the most important areas to find a good outcome in terms of are we going to regulate or are we not? And if we are, how are we going to regulate in a way that helps prevent stuff like this from happening in the future? I don't know, is that a topic that you think, am I right that that's one of the root causes and we should delve into it? No, I think, I think it would be incredible to get someone who is involved and engaged in journalism and media to discuss um, you know, what's happened with traditional media, maybe we could find someone who's, you know, who's worked in the social media world to talk about how they're struggling with this, you know, increased prominence and role. I, I think, you know, one of the things you hear from, you know, Facebook and Twitter and such is that, you know, we didn't set out to make these platforms into, you know, into media, we made them to connect people so that they could have conversations about things that they were interested in. You know, the fact that Twitter is almost the number one source of news now, I think is a, you know, at some level, a happy surprise and another level a deeply disturbing surprise to Twitter itself. But yeah. I, I think our history is actually, you know, strongly tied because, you know, democracy relies so heavily on information to support individuals making decisions. Uh, it is deeply tied to, to media and communications, you know. If you read the Adams uh, biography, you know, uh, Jefferson actually hired someone into the State Department simply to write broadsheets that, that denigrated Adams and, and Washington. Uh, 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 William Randolph Hearst and, and the whole yellow journalism um, was really about building a fever pitch of uh, support around populist movements. So we yeah, kind of funny that you say that. Sometimes when I'm reading my Twitter feed, depending on the tweet, I, I feel like it's a leaflet falling out of the sky. You know, it yeah. feels like propaganda. And in some ways, I don't know, I've never picked up a leaflet in the middle of the Korean War or anything, but it just feels <laughs> like coming across on my computer screen, it feels for whatever reason more dangerous than a leaflet. Um, yeah, I, uh, maybe it's just a very, very, very effective leaflet in the sense that it's 
it's deeply present it's it's personal it you know it doesn't rely on you stooping up and picking it up and re, you know and and now because of it's the sandwiched in between a tweet from you know harvard university and brookings and um you yeah. know so it's like it's in the middle of things that i think are are very trustworthy and know? that great video of the pandas playing in the snow i love right? that, so video. That, <laughs> so that video yeah so your brain is like receptive it's like sure give me more of that brain candy and you know some of that candy can come in the form of uh either you know actual facts or alternate facts um someone is listening to this saying oh danny you're so naive brookings and harvard are the exact propaganda you should <laughs> well good yeah uh, uh that's a whole other episode that is but whole uh but i i do think that um you know maybe once a month won't be enough but i i think we at least should commit to that and we should try to pull apart some of this stuff because ultimately if we're going to protect and defend these institutions that so many people have given their life to protecting and defending, then we have to understand them, we understand how they work, and we have to understand that complexity isn't a per se bad. It is actually a reflection of the size, the scale, um, and the interrelation of our, of our society and our economy. And, you know, a a, a very simple structure for the way this, this thing works is not reflective of the very complex world in which we operate. And so I, I think we should just commit to embrace the complexity and see if we can be a small part in, in making people more aware of it. I like embracing complexity. I'm a big fan of not talking and not looking at things through talking points, but you know, let's go examine the healthy patient first. I, I think the rail system, is a great story. And just from a kind of a relationship with government, I'm not saying it's in perfect health, but it's healthier than some of the things we just talked about. And we'll talk to Ian Jeffries about the, the, the growth of the rail industry and also the relationship it has with government. And then, and then in future interviews, we'll work from there. But I think starting with a, with a, health, with a, a seemingly healthy relationship may be the right place to start. Yeah, and I agree. And I, I think the, the whole rail industry is a fascinating metaphor for the, the literal and figurative knitting together of all our different states around a common purpose of, of connectivity, of economic vitality. It's, a, it's an interesting historical struggle between financiers and agriculture. It's, a, it's got a great history about how do, you, how do you do very, very, very complicated things over wide distances. It's supported our communications infrastructure. It's um, spread wealth and, and, um, and opportunity across the country. It's, I, I think it's a great first episode as a metaphor for everything we're gonna do this year. Yeah, it feels optimistic. So let's, uh, let's take a break and come back and talk to Ian. Great. Gov Actually is brought to you by the good folks at the FedScoop Radio Network. Be sure to check out what is happening on the forefront of government technology innovation at FedScoop, as well as the most important issues facing cybersecurity professionals at CyberScoop. Gov Actually is also supported by the Boston Consulting Group and the Center for Public Impact. All right, Danny, we're back. Um, hopefully uh, everyone stayed through that portion uh, survive the the temporary the, the the middle piece there and and are here to actually listen to a really really interesting 
uh, individual, Ian Jeffries, who runs the American Association of Railroads, an organization I have, I have a deep interest and ties to because I used to be the Federal Railroad Administration examiner, budget examiner at OMB. That was in the 1880s, Dan? Uh, it was in the, um, well, almost the late 1980s, but, but yeah, it feels like the 1880s. Um, but it is an organization whose history stretches way back into the 1880s, that's for yeah. sure. Um, the president and CEO uh, for two years now is Ian Jeffries. He's with us. And it, this is the this is I think the quintessential gov actually conversation, because the work that he does is at the intersection of a massive industry that people deeply take for granted that they don't realize how much they rely on, and relies very heavily on a long-standing and an elaborate set of regulatory kind of relationships and 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 um, legislative relationships. Um, the history of the United States and its industry and its transportation, its communication and its, and its agriculture industry is so tied up in the history of the railroads that, I mean, we could just make of actually about rail actually, uh, and, and we could still fill it up with stuff for months and months on end. So um, I'm talking too much. I'd like to introduce uh, Ian and welcome him to Gov actually. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me today, guys. And you're the rail guy. I do have questions, but I think yeah. <laughs> well, train, I think Dan. So go for it. Yeah, well, I appreciate you saying that. But well, my trains are mainly, you know, transit, not, right. not rail. But I, I I got there through heavy rail. And I, I think actually what would be helpful, I, I kind of alluded to it, but but Ian, I imagine you have a much a much better kind of elevator pitch about why trains, you know, what is the, what is it, the relevance to the economy? Um, why are they such an incredible, powerful barometer of, of economic success? And, and frankly, what's the secret story about their, their sustainability, uh, how they relate to a broader sustainable, um, environmentally sustainable economy? So we could probably spend the next, you know, two, two, three episodes trying to answer that question, but um, I'll, I'll try to try to boil it down. But Dan, you, you hit on some of those key points in your intro. Um, when you really, you look at the nation's freight railroads, one, you know, the, the, the past 150 years of uh, the United States and the development, industrial development of the United States, you know, freight rail was an integral part of that process. We all know that, that railroads helped westward expansion over time, and really the West was built out in large part around the rail network. A lot of Western cities now, um, the, the core of town is, is, the, is the rail running through it. But economy-wise, the, the railroads go as the economy goes. And um, the, you know, uh, uh, there's a good reason that, that Warren Buffett tracks rail traffic uh, as, a, as a key economic indicator. Because when you look at a cross-section of what makes up our, our economic performance, um, whether you're talking about consumer goods, which move in containers, intermodal containers, whether you're talking about agricultural products, whether you're talking about your, your base industrial products, your raw materials, or whether you're talking about, um, for example, automobiles, of which over 75% of finished automobiles move on a, a train at some point in their lives. It's really a cross-section of our economy. And the one area we don't hit is, is kind of the, the information service side of the economy, uh, understandably not, not so tangible there. And certainly that's a growing part and a large part of the economy, but 
the, the goods based and the, the tangible portion of our economy moves on rail. And um, we, we do it quietly. You said that we do it uh, on our own dime. Um, we're fortunate enough that we aren't, uh, aren't up on Capitol Hill asking for, for federal money. We invest our own money back into our networks about $26 billion a year. And uh, we do it safely and we do it in, a, in an environmentally sound way. So um, we, we've got a lot to be proud of and we try to tell our story anywhere we can. Ian, if the railroad tracks are broken or deteriorating, who pays for the repair and the maintenance of that infrastructure? Right. So if you're talking about uh, freight rail, it's, it's, the, it's the railroads who pay for that. So our, there, there are seven class one railroads, which are the biggest railroads uh, in the country. There are about 500 smaller railroads, but, but the big guys are, are paying for their maintenance, their CapEx, um, their, their operations. And like I said, that, that comes at a price tag of about $26 billion a year. Now, your, your public um, commuter rail, your Amtraks, um, they're obviously relying on, on federal funds uh, to a, a significant amount when it comes to, to their, um, their CapEx and their maintenance. But uh, when, it, when it comes to freight, it's, it's on the backs of the private companies. And how would you describe the state of, of, the, of the system from an infrastructure standpoint? And I'm raising the question because I'm just curious about juxtaposing you know, publicly funded infrastructure, right. highways, bridges, grids, things like that, which are been long thought of as crumbling with a bunch of deferred maintenance and in need of investment. The classic, you know, infrastructure bipartisan uh, right. topic versus something that's more privatized and whether there's a, a difference in, in how private industry maintains its own massive infrastructure. Yeah, so you're, you're probably going to accuse me of being a cheerleader, but fortunately, what I'm about to say actually is true. So um, uh, the freight rail network in this country is, is literally the envy of the world. Um, we know our passenger rail system is not where it needs to be for this country. We lag behind, um, significantly behind uh, other leading countries. Um, but when we look at the, uh, at the freight network, um, the, the American Society of Civil Engineers does its report card on infrastructure, uh, all sorts of infrastructure. I think they do it every year, every other year. And, and freight rail by leaps and bounds gets the highest score. I think we're around a, a B plus, uh, A minus. Um, so not perfect, but uh, a pretty good score. And that uh, compares to you know, a lots, lots of Ds and D minuses across the board for other types of infrastructure. So um, freight railroading doesn't come doesn't come cheap. It's an incredibly capital intensive industry, but um, the, the, the railroads are, are diligent about, about you know, putting up the funds necessary to keep the system at a, at a high performing level. Because if we don't, we'll lose business. And if we don't, we'll, we'll, we'll put the system at risk. And I, I mentioned the, the safety attributes of rail a few minutes ago, and kind of our tagline is, a well-maintained railroad is a safe railroad. So investing back in the network results in a higher caliber of service, a higher level of safety, higher level of efficiency. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the payoff is there. I'm curious I, about other federal regulations. Like, you know, you think about air, airline pilots can't fly planes unless they've gotten a sufficient amount of sleep or truck drivers. So what are some of the federal regulations that the railroad industry faces from a safety and a environmental perspective. Right. So um, as, as, we, as we mentioned earlier, the, the rail industry has about 150 years of federal regulations on the books. I think the industry was the originally federally regulated 
industry in this country. And we have a, an operational regulator through the Federal Railroad Administration, but we also have an economic regulator through the Surface Transportation Board, an, an independent agency um, in the US government. And so we have regulations covering, you know, as you mentioned, hours of service regulations uh, for our employees, um, inspection regulations for, for our track, for our locomotives, for our cars, for every attribute of the network. Um, but then we also have a economic regulatory structure that governs um, potential disputes between railroads and their customers and um, potential challenges when it comes to, to rates a, a railroad might charge a, a rail shipper. And if there's a, if there's a disagreement about what the appropriate rate is, that can be adjudicated over at the Surface Transportation Board. Um, but we, we, we have 150 years of regulations on the books. Um, and uh, some of that uh, is, is fantastic. Some of it presents its challenges since there are regulations on the books from uh, the steam engine era still. So a big, uh, a big effort on our part is really trying to modernize the regulatory structure um, because technology has come such a long way in this industry along with every other industry that we have new ways of doing things that result in a much higher caliber of, for example, track inspection um, versus the naked eye, which the regulations currently require. So um, there's a lot of work to do there, but um, it's something you know, we'll, we'll continue to, to focus on. But the, the regulatory web is, is vast. One, one really interesting and current example of that, which is this, this intersection of traditional railroading and technology. And um, look, the, the, the whole story about uh, the modern American freight railroad is so fascinating. It is the original public-private partnership. Right. Um, the Ambrose book, Nothing Like It in the World, is is definitely uh, should be on a reading list if you geek out on this stuff. And um, you're just showing off now, but okay. Yeah, no, but anyways, uh, well, you, you said you know I, I got a I got a passing interest in this. Um, the the bigger you know the the one of the big current issues controversial and difficult issues is the positive train control um, regulations. Can you talk a little bit about what that means and what that means for the safety and efficiency of, of our, our rail network? Sure, so in, in short, uh, positive train control is a technology that the, the railroads all were kind of individually working on uh, in, in various points over the past several decades. And basically it's a, it's a technological backstop that automatically stops a train in certain situations. If a train um, uh, or its crew is, is not following certain orders, um, running signals, uh, misaligned tracks, um, it'll shut the train down um, to uh, account for human error. So um, certainly not a panacea, but the, the types of accidents PTC can prevent are often the while rare, but most catastrophic events out there. So um, the, there was a mandate in um, um, 2000, oh my gosh, um, 2009 put into place uh, requiring that uh, positive train control be put on uh, main lines of railroads, about 60,000 miles of, uh, of line. Um, and that became probably the biggest uh, technological capital endeavor uh, the rail industry has ever encountered. And um, the original uh, completion date was, was um, to be uh, 2015. Um, when that mandate was put in place in 2009, the railroad said, you know, we, we're working on this, but we cannot be done by 2015. We're just gonna tell you right now, um, we'll continue to press and press and press. And there was eventually an extension put into place um, 
that, that allowed the railroads, if, if they cleared a number of uh, hurdles, to, to have until the end of uh, 2020 to finish. Um, and I'm proud to say that, um, that, that the entire industry reached that goal, crossed the finish line here at the end of last year, and PTC is fully up and running. But um, that comes, you know, I think roughly around $12 billion uh, 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 of a price tag of a project. Um, we built out a 54,000 mile 5G network because it's all wireless uh, technology that's, that's backing this system. Um, all the railroad systems had to be able to talk to each other because they all operate over each other's tracks. Um, but we, we crossed the finish line. It's a huge leap forward um, in, in safety. Um, but it'll also pay dividends down the road now that this this backbone is in place. Ian, the way you're 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 talking, and this to me, it's a fascinating question in terms of the culture of each industry and how it reacts to federal regulations, right? And um, Dan and I did a whole podcast um, last year, I think it was uh, in two thousand, maybe it was back in two thousand nineteen, on gun control, and we talked about different industries and how and how that one industry, it's extremely, extremely contentious mm -hmm. to, uh, to invoke safety regulations of any kind. And without getting into that whole mess, when you were talking just now, I, I got a sense of a point of pride with what you were able to accomplish. But what is the culture of the industry with respect to regulations? Is there a really productive common under, I mean, obviously there's probably points of contention and concerns about overregulation in certain places. But when you were talking, I got this sense that there may be a healthy relationship and dialogue that goes on in terms of understanding the benefits of certain regulations when it comes to, to safety. Yeah, so it's, uh, I would say there's a, a healthy, um, I'm going to use the term adversarial just, you know, by, by the textbook terminology of it, that there is a push and a pull between the regulator and the regulatee. That's a natural, natural occurrence. But I think the industry really works hard to have open lines of communication, um, frequent lines of communication, discussions about ideas and issues um, with, with its regulator. And you, you throw in that we're also almost 100% um, collectively bargained industry as well. So we have 13 unions we negotiate with too. So you have this kind of a, a, a triangle of the regulator, our, our, our bargaining um, agreements and uh, the railroads themselves. So, um, you know, I think our main issue is Let's talk about, and this has been a challenge, not only for our industry, but I assume for others. Let's, let's talk about the goal we're trying to accomplish. Let's talk about the outcome we're trying to achieve. Let's not focus on the, 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 the way that uh, uh, um, you're going to, to, to regulate. For example, um, you know, I mentioned that we still have regulations on the books from the steam engine era. And it's no secret, and I'm sure it's something you all have talked about, that you know, the regulatory process is, is incapable of keeping up with the evolution of, of industry and just the march forward in, in progress. And so um, our view is that if we focus on the outcomes we're really seeking with um, a regulation, whether it's you know, reductions in derailments or various you know, types of incidents out there, let's, let's set those goals and then let's provide some broader parameters for how companies can meet those goals versus here's how you have to do an inspection without focus, being focused on the outcome, if that makes sense. So um, I think that's been a big push, but the dialogue I think is healthy. It's obviously driven by the personalities. 
And so when you have folks at the FRA or at DOT um, who are really interested in, hey, let's figure out the best way to do this. And you have folks in our companies who are really focused on, yes, it makes sense to talk to the regulator. You generally have, you know, I think workable outcomes. Not always the case, um, but it's on us to, uh, to, to make um, the best case we can for, for why, uh, you know, one, one way might be more appropriate than another when you have a proposal. Yeah, I think I think you know one of your you know one of the the incredible things that you you're as an industry bring to the discussion is this incredible robust history. You know the the how did the how did the rails get built across the country? There was a partnership with the um, with the U.S. federal government. You were the first massive industry to cross state lines, so you were the you know you were the test case for the 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 extent of the interstate commerce act right, Alfred exactly. chandler in the visible hand said that it was the rail industry that created the modern corporation um but i think what's really interesting is in programs like the rail rehabilitation and improvement financing or rrif program there is this opportunity for exploring the idea of long-term uh, federal support of capital investment in in transportation assets that the rail industry has has demonstrated a, a potential for that my question to you is do you see that as a, a possible source of of um, structure for funding to solve the broader transportation issues so you know that program in particular has so much potential and uh, I think it's something like $35 billion set aside, which you just don't have those chunks of money laying around anymore. Um, for, the, for the larger freight carriers, the class ones that I referenced, they're probably going to go to the, the, public, the debt markets, the capital markets for that sort of thing. But there is absolutely a sweet spot for some of the, um, the, the smaller short line railroads, um, passenger railroads of all types to tap into that program. It's been vastly undersubscribed, and I think due to some of the credit risk premium nuances around it. Um, but when you look at other programs, you know, in the highway program, I believe there's a program called the TIFIA program, which has been, I think, much more successful. I know in water infrastructure, they, they made the WIFIA program. Um, and so I think there is absolutely a place for those sorts of programs that can provide that bridge financing and very long payback terms where you don't have, uh, you know, you have at or near treasury yield rates. So um, folks who don't, uh, uh, who can't access the, the capital markets like, um, like the larger railroads can, um, that's, that's an outlet for them to, 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 to get some financing for what are very, um, very uh, probably high price tag, but very long-term investments that require that long-term payback. So the opportunities there, we just got to get the program functioning at a high level, which I remember banging my head against the wall back when I worked in the Senate trying to figure out how to, how to make it function better. It's not easy. So Ian, we're going to wrap up, but, and I, I can't let you go without asking you about the pandemic mm -hmm. uh, and its impact on on the industry and it's, it's hitting every industry differently. And, you know, what keeps you up at night about where we are with respect to the pandemic as it relates to the rail industry and, and what, what makes you hopeful? So uh, I'll just, I'll, I'll walk back real quick to how, we, where, you know, where we were and where, where we are today. You know, March hit hard last March um, as it hit every industry. We saw about a 30% drop off in traffic, um, had to furlough quite a few employees and um, had to put in 
a series of protocols uh, for, for reducing employee risk because our industry certainly is not one where you can work from home. Um, you've got to be on the job site. You've got to be running the railroad to, to deliver for customers. Um, we saw volumes start coming back in the fall. Um, you know, we, as I said, we move a lot of automobiles and when the auto plants shut down, um, the, those autos weren't moving. Um, but the, the autos came back. Uh, the e-commerce um, sector has been gangbusters all year, and that's intermodal traffic, container traffic that railroads move a lot of. Ag's been doing really well uh, going into the fall. So volume started coming back. We were able to start bringing employees back off furlough. Um, the thing that keeps me up is, you know, one, keeping our employee base safe. If we don't have our employees um, who, are, who are safe and um, who, are, who are safe from the illness, um, you know, we can't we can't function, we can't operate. So, so that's number one. Um, you know, the, the broader economy, of course, that, that keeps folks up at night, but I think we feel generally, um, I'll say cautiously optimistic about the, the economy this year and um, the, the hopefully resurgence of the industrial economy. But at the end of the day, you know, we, we, it may sound cliche, but our folks go to work every day with safety front and center. Railroading is a heavy industry, industry um, with inherent risk. And so, you know, the coronavirus, the pandemic adds another layer um, of risk and concern to our employees. And it's incumbent upon all of us to focus on how we can, we can put them in the best position to, to come home safe every night. So that's always going to be the issue. And the pandemic uh, just adds yet another, yet another uh, um, concern on that front. Um, so hopefully we can, we can get our folks and, and get the rest of the population vaccinated as, as soon as we can. And um, we can all get back to work. Well, thank you, Ian, for joining. And I, you know, it's, I think one of the goals of the podcast is to learn new things and learn new areas. And this is a really important part of what makes America function. And as Dan said, it's underappreciated, but also it was really fascinating to hear the, uh, the healthy uh, advocacy that each side puts on the regulatory frame. It's really fascinating to hear a good news story about a massive infrastructure that's up to date and modern and well cared for um, and, and likely needs more attention as we figure out solutions to, to these types of problems in other parts of, of American life. So thank you, Ian, and stay safe and hope to have you back on the show at some point. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Look forward to talking to you all soon. Yeah, really appreciate you being on, Ian, uh, and keep up the good work. I'll, I'll explain to Danny later on the difference between a glazer and a foamer, okay? All right. <laughs> <laughs> All Take right. Take care, guys. Take Bye -bye. care.